0: Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcasts, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Tom, thank you so much for that overview. I always learn so much from you. Um, I have a cousin in the audience who's in high school, so I'm gonna kind of put her on the spot here. What advice would you recommend to young people who are looking at all of these global threats um, and trying to figure out uh, where they fit into the world, where they can add the most value. Um, what would you say to young people who are interested in careers in foreign affairs and what that would look like for them in the right.
1: future? Um, the first thing I would say is don't lose hope. Uh, the, you know, uh, it could be, it's probably going to be a pendulum swing. We've gone very far, very far. Um, in the direction of dismantling uh, our sort of structured career diplomacy. Um, The political process and the foreign policy process is broken. It's individualized more than should be the case. Um, Congress is not playing the role it is supposed to um, in foreign affairs, especially when it comes to uh, war powers. Um, I'm hopeful that this, this pendulum is swung far enough over that it ought to be clear to anybody and that we will swing back. You know, President Obama and Hillary Clinton, when they came in, vowed to increase the Foreign Service by 25% in their first term. And I remember the first two years, I had students um, who were getting in. They were letting in 900, 950 new Foreign Service people a year. Um, Of course, it went back down to under 100. And at a certain point, they're down to about 50. Um, those days will come back. I mean, a lot of people realize we've got to increase the uh, number of career diplomats. So these opportunities will be there. Um, and also, I mean, it's going to be up to your generation. You guys, you guys are going to have to come in, you know, in waves <laughs> here and, um, uh, and try to undo, frankly, what the boomer generation has done here in our country. As a boomer, I say that. Um, And as I say, I wish it wasn't boomers as far as the eye can see in our political landscape right now. Um, So but it's going to take time, and it's going to take patience, um, and it's going to take not losing hope in our system. Uh, Yes, One of the disturbing things that you see are uh, recent polling information from the Pew Research Center again, um, asking basic questions such as, is it essential to live in a democracy? Um, huge generational gaps have have uh, widened. Among boomers, about 80% say yes. Millennials, 30%. And ask the question: Is it ever admissible for the military to take power? You know, by, by implication, not, to, not you know, forever. Um, once again, 80-something percent of of, uh, of boomers say no. 19% of Millennials say no. You know, the military is head and shoulders the most respected institution in our country right now, double digits ahead of the next. Um, so, uh, and, and we had a, a parliamentarian from Germany here a couple months ago who said, in terms of German youth attitudes, he said, if democracy and capitalism do not deliver on two issues, climate change and economic fairness, they are open to other systems. So, I guess I would just say the stakes are high. Stay committed. Believe in our system. It can work. Um, it's going to take time. And I, I think, I really do think that subsequent administrations, the Democrats are already talking about if they come in, they're going to try to you know, get back to, you know, Amy Klobuchar has a list of five res. you got to redo this, re, re, you know, kind of going, I mean, going back, if you will. Um, kind of pressing the reset button. Um, but uh, I, I, think, I think that it's going to get better, and the challenges are greater than ever. And last thing, do area studies if you want to get internationally involved, learn languages. Um, you know, Area studies have fallen away in our universities. Uh, I remember going into the Foreign Service. One of the things I learned was it, it takes empathy to be a diplomat. I mean, you've got to understand where the other side is coming from if you want to direct them toward what you want them to do. It uh, doesn't mean you agree with them, but you've got to understand them. And so, uh, anyway, I wish you godspeed, and I hope you do get involved.
0: Thanks, Tom. Uh, There are a few questions here related to Africa. Could you talk a bit about uh, what the US involvement in Africa looks like at this point during the Trump administration, um, during the George W. Bush administration, and under the Obama administration? There's a great deal of investment in. eradicating HIV AIDS on the continent, and there's the Power Africa initiative, all these kind of different ways of um, amplifying connections between the people of Africa and the people of the United States. Can you talk about what that looks like under Trump, and then also more broadly um, how US engagement in Africa is calibrated with regard to China?
1: So I just say a a couple couple of things. you have to give credit to the George W. Bush administration. The a- HIV initiative really did have positive results it was It was one thing that that uh, had an impact. Um, it was an example of positive cooperation. President Obama uh, tried to get u s investment in Africa and he organized a kind of a year of Africa with great fanfare to try to get investment and it was a big thud. Our companies uh, are not going in for, uh, for whatever reason. Our economic footprint in Africa is very small. Um, China, obviously, is all over the map in the number one trading partner of all African com- uh, countries, pretty much. Turkey has gone in quite a bit, Japan. Um, Of course, France has always been involved in West Africa. We have—we're just not in the game. Uh, Where we are in the game, of course, is with our military bases, and it's—it is all aimed at terrorism. You know, once Al Shabaab and uh, Boko Haram um, and other uh, potentially Al Qaeda-linked groupings arose, we began to activate Africom uh, uh, to—to be in the region. Tellingly, um, as we shift now to Russia and China and Trump says we want to get out of the Middle East, we're also talking about getting out of Africa. Uh, there, there are reports that they're going to try to do major troop deplace, uh, replacements out of Africa um, uh, as part of this repositioning initiative, um, which, once again, I think would be, would be problematic. China, you know, he, it, it builds quick infrastructure. There's a danger of a debt trap half the time. Um, but these countries are willing to undergo this. Um, and they do have growth growth rates that that, that start to show uh, that something is happening. One problem is China gives a lot of aid on uh, energy to Africa, and a lot of it is coal. They are not very green when it comes to helping African countries. The World Bank, only 1.7 percent of its programs in Africa on energy are coal or polluting. China, it's about 48 percent. So that is one of the maybe more negative aspects of China's relation. But as I say, at the State Department, that's an example that is used of where China is really ahead of us, where we're not on the playing field and and should be, because this is the continent of the future.
0: Thanks. Uh, There there are some great comments on this card. I'm just going to read it verbatim, because I love it. So it says, best Tom Hansen yet. So, props to you. Uh, It says, these topics should have been part of the democratic debates. I agree, yes. Um, And then the question is, can can the climate disaster be prevented without U.S.-China cooperation?
1: Can the climate uh, without U.S.-China cooperation? Um, Probably not. You know, actually, what made the Paris climate talks a success was the fact that China and the US met beforehand and signed a bilateral deal with specific, um, with specific targets. Um, and that, that going into that, the other country saw this and thought, well, I guess, yeah, you know, we, we should be doing this. Um, the problem was Obama promised certain reductions by about 2022 20, or so, in, in the early 2020s. China has said it will not be able to turn this vast polluting ship around until the earliest 2030. And of course, that's why people attacked the agreement, because we were making more immediate promises than China was. And in addition, our Supreme Court knocked down what China had promised, saying that uh, the U.S. government cannot tell corporations what to do in that regard. So um, what we had promised was basically undone even before. Um, Trump came in. There's got to be cooperation among all these large countries, because frankly, if we do a lot, as long as India is is massively um, using coal to, and, and they should electrify their villages, a huge percentage of their villages have no electricity. And the, you know, the word from India is, well, you guys rose unencumbered. We should have the same right. You know, this is a, and so the West... Should be helping these countries. Their promises were made in Paris of aid to countries like India that would that would bite the bullet, and that aid has not been forthcoming. It has not been realized. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're 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 living in a world of 193 nation states, and they're actually growing. The number is growing. Um, And we're facing this very common, very shared threat. Um, It's going to take a tremendous rethink. um, And it's going to take, yes, very close cooperation. Um, I remember in the Audacity of Hope back in 2007, right before he he was elected, um, Barack Obama wrote that the key to the future is that we can cooperate with countries like China, Russia, India, even if. Their domestic structures are different from ours. He, he, he separated those out. He, you know, he struck that balance, saying, OK, we disagree with the way they organize themselves. We disagree with their human rights record. But we can cooperate because we share an interest um, in these issues. Um, and so that's got to be the mentality. It's, it's going the other way, as I said right now, I'm afraid. But it's got to come back. And it will require that kind of cooperation. Yes.
0: Okay. I. Right. Another question that kind of brings it back to the Western, Western Hemisphere is if we are concerned about illegal immigration from Central America, why are we doing so little to help those areas prosper by contributing to their economic development? Um, and I, I would add, this isn't part of the, the audience question, but you know, contributing to regional instability by backing certain factions of governments and in getting involved militarily. Uh, in the region. Um, so uh, what could we be doing that would be helpful? What is potentially on the docket under the Trump administration to support Central um, Central American nations? Um, and why have we cut our budgets, uh, the budgets of some of the intervention programs that were more based on economics in
1: those areas? Right, right. Good, good question. Um, um, Andrew Basevich, who is, by the way, part of a new institute that's just been founded called the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. It's the new kid on the block, um, kind of based, you know, sort of John Quincy Adams, uh, uh, a very kind of realist institution. Um, and Basevich, you know, has l- written a lot about the military, and he, he posits what would have happened if we had taken the money we've spent in the Middle East. In, since 2001 and invested it in our own hemisphere. W- what would have been the result? I mean, what, what could we have accomplished? Um, we've been using our money elsewhere. Um, yes, I, you know, we probably should be trying to help a country like Mexico more with aid uh, for infrastructure, also to get a handle on the lack of governance that prevails in certain parts of Mexico right now with the, with the drug gangs. We have a common interest. Um, without interfering in their internal affairs, without going in unasked, um, but to try to get a handle on this for for the benefit of our own region. Um, The money we're giving right now, actually, we're we're taking a page from the European playbook. As they faced mass immigration in 2015, remember a million came into Germany, for example, they realized that the best way to handle this would be to pay other countries to keep the refugees there. In other words, invest um, in above and uh, above all uh, Turkey, which, as you know, is, is is got a million or more refugees uh, there. Uh, theoretically, the European Union is supposed to be paying them for this. My understanding is that the the money hasn't really come through yet. But we're doing the same thing down in Mexico and Central America. We're we're you know there are articles every day now about is it morally correct to make these potential refugees stay down in this dangerous uh, area of northern Mexico, you know, where they're subjected to all kinds of things? Is that the right way to handle this? Um, That's kind of where our investment um, is going right now. Uh, We can't undo the money that we've spent. Um, We have a lot of need for infrastructure spending here at home now, which is, you know, Donald Trump got a lot of votes on that concept. And um, as did Barack Obama. And um, so, no, I mean, we're not giving enough money to the region now. Uh, we should be doing more. I'm afraid it's, it's not at the top of the priority list in light of what we've done over the past several decades.
0: Uh, and kind of a complimentary question uh, is what is the input of refugees themselves on geopolitics? What does it look like for refugees and displaced persons around the world? Um, and are there any opportunities for them to provide any input in the situation that they have found themselves in?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the, the key distinction is between uh, um, immigrants and refugees. right? Refugees is a special status. Um, I, I, my understanding is there are 20, 71 million displaced persons in the world today, which, by the way, is exactly the number of empty apartments in China uh, <laughs> as, uh, <laughs> as fate would have it. I don't know if there's a policy there, but anyway. Um, and I believe it's about 26 million refugees. Now, refugees um, do not get admitted at the border. They've got to come in through third countries. Um, that's why a lot of our Somali fellow citizens have spent time in camps in Kenya, for example, or our Hmong uh, fellow citizens have been in northern Thailand for a time um, as the process is worked through. So. Um, and, and of course, you have to be. You have to, there are certain criteria you have to. You have to be fleeing uh, certain kinds of, uh, of violence um, and persecution. Um, the the uh, it, it has been expanded now to include personal persecution. For example, a, domestic, a dangerous domestic situation is part of it. Um, at the UN, they are working on creating a new um, category of refugee: climate refugees. And you can imagine how many of those. There could well be. Uh, the Western countries are trying to stop that. The Western countries don't like this idea of having to take more refugees. Um, you know, the refugees really, they, they don't have a lot of rights. Um, and that, that's the whole issue. They are often fleeing war zones. Uh, they come into these camps, whether it's in uh, Jordan. I don't know if you've seen these huge camps where people have been languishing for years and years and years, um, they, they really are devoid of certain rights. If they can get the refugee status and get into a regularized process, then, um, then they have a handle. But they have to prove that they meet these criteria of why they left their country. Um, but now, even if they do, the United States is closing the door even to legal refugees. As I said, the numbers are way, way down. Um, so this is, this is a tragic, and, and of course, it's a product of the wars. You know, earlier wars up in, in the 19th century were fought among armies, often mercenary armies. Uh, ever since the 20th century, the main victims of war have been the civilian populations all around the world. Um, and it's leading to these terrible situations we see. Um, the effect, of course, of immigration, if, it, if it's too rapid, um, uh, you know, we've seen how it can impact the politics. Of, um, of countries. In, in Europe, it's been part of it. But I, I come back to this point that in many, some, in many cases, uh, the refugee issue is used um, uh, kind of as a scapegoat for often other issues, especially economic. So um, it's, it's a very tragic situation, and it's one that's growing around the world right now.
0: Thank you. Uh, I've been told we, we only have time for one more question. Thank you all for your outstanding questions. There are so many different directions we could go with this. Um, but I will just ask another one related to China and population and immigration and you know, the impact that that can have on the world. Uh, so the question is uh, how will uh, the, how is the one child policy in China Um, impacting Chinese society and their ambitions Um, and you know what does it look like going forward with the the relaxation of the one-child policy Uh, what what will that uh, entail in terms of societal changes
1: right good point Uh, well this map kind of sums it up I mean look at China uh, from this year and then going forward to 2100 I mean they have they will have a declining rapidly declining population um, actually, this chart, uh, previous charts showed India up around 1.7 billion, even up to a couple of years ago, and they've ratcheted that back a bit. But the China decline is there. This, well, it depends on how you look at it. Now, a lot of older people to take care of, obviously. This is a, going to be a caregiving society. Um, they're worried about a workforce. Although I can't imagine with that many, the population that large, that that would be a problem. But, but, but yes, I mean, right now China has four times more than four times the population of the US. It has more than the European Union, the United States, Russia, uh, Japan combined. I mean, w- when people wonder, how can China be so active around the world? Well, <laughs> they have got the human resources to do a lot. Um, now, if you look at Japan, Japan has been suffering, um, you know, the, Japan and Germany had the lowest birth rates in the world last year. Germany was dead last. and. Um, Um, These are societies that are aging. Uh, You can see it in the way their economies function. But if we're heading toward a low growth economy, I mean, there's always been a contradiction between this idea that you've got to have growth, you've got to have growth, you've got to have growth, which is what our economies have been based on up until recently, to a more maybe lower growth sustainability model, in which case maybe the population uh, is you know, not having a rising population maybe is not as dire. Because certainly Japan has been getting along for decades now um, in that kind of a stagflation environment. Um, so but it's going to cause all kinds of issues for China. One problem, as it is in India, is infanticide of girls. When you could only have one child, a lot of Chinese families. Um, it's funny, the Chinese are superstitious in a way. They're, they're going way back. You have to have a son to perform the rituals so that your ancestors don't become what they call hungry ghosts and wander wander the world as as specters and kind of cause a nuisance right the, okay they don't believe that literally anymore but but it's still there sort still the superstition is still there certainly the belief that you have to have a son so there's a huge male overhang in china right now um there are various estimates of how large but you know that can be a a stressor of a society, um, kind of detached males. Um, India's got little of that, not as much as China as well. So China's gearing up for social problems from this. Um, and they're worried about the impact on the economy. Um, and as I say, it depends on you know, which view of a, of a future economy um, you believe in, given, given the, the challenges we face.
0: All right. Let's give Tom another round of Thanks applause. Thanks, everybody. Thank, Thank you. So